a season of lights. That's one way to describe Christmas. And what a season of lights it is. There are colored lights, white lights, bubble lights, blinking lights, bulb lights, music lights, projector lights, net lights, rope lights, icicle lights, and any lights that I left out that are your favorite lights. Christmas is the favorite season of lights. While Christmas can be a season of lights, it can also be a dark time as well. Uh, This time of year, Christmas comes when the days are shorter, and thus it can be darker longer. But there's another kind of darkness that can settle in at Christmas time. The darkness of loneliness, maybe missing a loved one, maybe the darkness of being away from home. Christmas is a bright time, but it can be a dark time too. In 2012, nearly 10 years ago now, just over 10 years ago, Rolling Stone magazine ranked an album that ranked number 202 in their list of top 500 greatest albums of all time. This album was by Simon and Garfunkel, which I know that many of you have not heard of. One of the most popular songs came from the album title, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme, Are You Going to Scarborough Fair? I recall hearing that song as a child that played on the easy listening station on the radio as my parents drove around town in our car that was bigger than an M1 Abrams tank, a Chevy Capri with vinyl seats that your legs stuck to if you wore shorts in the summer when it got too hot. Yes, are you going to Scarborough Fair? Well, well, on side two of that vinyl is a song, 7 o'clock news slash silent night. And layered over the top of Simon and Garfield singing A Maudlin Silent Night is the voice of a radio announcer delivering the 7 o'clock evening news headlines. And as the song moves along, the singing of Silent Night slowly fades to the background while the voice of the news reporter increases as he records news of a drug overdose, a murder, a war, and protests. It's a rather haunting juxtaposition. Try singing Silent Night the next time you listen to the headline news. Not all is calm and not all is bright. Christmas can be dark, too. The first Christmas and the prophecies that led up to it came to people living in darkness. There was an iron-fisted ruler named Herod that not even his family members were safe around was ruling the throne. And news came to him that a baby boy was now being hailed as a newborn king. And threatened by the news of this baby, Herod had all of the baby boys two years and under slaughtered. It was not a silent night. There was no peace from Rome. It was a dark time. Political oppression, death, still a foreigner in your own land. That was the darkness of the first Christmas in Bethlehem. And even now, as Christmas time now falls across the globe, Israel is again at war with a terrorist group that's done more violence to them than Herod ever did. Ukraine and Russia are still at war, and either conflict feels like just maybe it could turn in if the right thing goes wrong into a world war. There's the darkness of death, political oppression, and war at Christmas time. It certainly was dark that first Christmas. We could sing now with Andrew Peterson, Do you feel the word is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. And yet, that first Christmas could not stop all the light from shining through. For Philip Brooks wrote in that Christmas carol, O little town of Bethlehem, yet in the dark streets shineth an everlasting light. Light in the darkness. That's what happens in our passage today. Yet against the darkness of the winter sky, the darkness of political oppression and war against the darkness of our own sins comes the light of Christmas, the light of Christ. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Friend, maybe you're in darkness today. You could see a great light in Christ. Would you please locate Isaiah? It's in part one of the Christian Bible or maybe roughly in the middle of the Bible We'll be looking at here today, Isaiah chapter 9. We're spending Christmas with Isaiah, Advent and Isaiah. Isaiah has a, the hard job of bringing bad news to the nation that he loves. So part one of this book is filled with news of judgment. 
But even in the middle of the bad news, Isaiah brings good news. His own name means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. The good news comes in part one in the form of what we've called an Emmanuel trilogy, chapter 7, 9, and 11. And these three chapters reference a son being born under supernatural circumstances, a son with a breathtaking name of Emmanuel, that in the Hebrew word order means something like with us, God, or we would say God with us. But like notes in a chord, Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11, they stack on each other and they harmonize. If you want to flatten out that image and flatten out the chord, you should hear this Emmanuel trilogy of chapters as notes in our favorite Christmas song that make up a melody of, of redemption and a minor key of judgment. The book of Isaiah is full of good news, realistic news given to people walking in darkness. People in our world today, people like you and like me. Now, before we read our text, let's recall the historical context Last week, we watched a king named Ahaz from the house of David come face to face with the question of who would he trust in a time of crisis? Historians call it the Syro-Ephraimite War, where the nations of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel had formed an allegiance to protect themselves against the rising superpower of the day, the Assyrians. Well, King Ahaz refuses to join with them, so now those two nations, Syria and Ephraim, are now going to invade the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. And more, the line of David's about to be wiped out. So now he's faced. Who will he trust in the time of impending invasion? And what would God do now that his promise, the Davidic line, is in danger? Well, by the time the story ends, King Ahaz refuses an offer from God of a miraculous sign of a present persuader. And instead of trusting the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, King Ahaz pays tribute to the Syrians Tribute he gets from God's own treasury and the promise of their protection. But God was so committed to his promises to the house of David that God now promises a sign that would come in the form of a future after the fact confirmation. And what was the sign? Isaiah seven fourteen. behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel with us, God. God with us. The astounding prophecy came to pass in the birth of Jesus and Christians ever since have marveled at the incarnation and the mystery of mercy that it is. We sang some of that offspring of a virgin's womb veiled in flesh. The Godhead see pleased as a man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. That was the first note in this melody of redemption in Isaiah seven. And this week, we're going to add a note to that chord, a note to that melody of redemption and Christmas. This week, we learn that God is not only with us in Jesus Christ, but we will learn of what this Christ will do through his character and his titles. But first, back to Ahaz. His decision not to trust the Lord in chapter 7 led to darkness and gloom that's described in Isaiah chapter 8. Because he distrusted God, Ahaz now plunges his own life and the nation into a deeper darkness than he could have imagined. Not only a political darkness, but a deep moral darkness that they couldn't get themselves out of. The moral darkness is described of ways in Isaiah's opening chapters. And Isaiah 2, he talks about God's own people. Religious people like you and me who, who, who go to the temple and offer their sacrifice. Yes, yes, that's not really what's going on in their heart. He describes these people in Isaiah 2, God's people, as seeking fortune tellers rather than God. Chapter 2, verse 6. They trust their treasure more than God. Chapter 2, verse 7. And they worship their idols, things they've made with their own hands instead of God. That's a reflection like Israel of old. Here we are in the deep south. But we often seek other sources of meaning rather than God. We love things in this world more than God. We treasure our treasure. And like Israel of old, we have our idols starting with no greater idol than the self, which must be worshipped at all costs. We must not only worship ourselves. You have to worship the self. This is the world we live in. Throughout chapter 8, God describes the political and moral darkness that surrounds these people, a darkness that, like us, they brought on themselves. The rejection of God promises freedom. 
The rejection of God promises enlightenment-like illumination, but it ends in darkness. And now we're ready to pick up our reading at the end of Isaiah 8, chapter 22. Let's read Isaiah 8, 22, going through verse 3. Here now is the situation we find ourselves in. This is what Holy Scripture says. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is the word of the Lord. First, I want us to see the darkness of getting what we want. The darkness of getting what we want. Like an adoring husband, God has showered this ancient nation of Israel with his love. But throughout the years, Israel has responded to God's loving loyalty with appalling unfaithfulness. And so after years and years, centuries of pursuing his bride to woo her back again, God finally gives his chosen people what they want. He lets them go off into the hand of their lovers, into the arms of the nations they want to be like. In this case, it comes in the brutal superpower of the day, the Assyrians. They're about to get what they want. Darkness. The darkness of exile thrust into thick darkness. The darkness and oppression, friends, that comes when you become your own Lord and your own master. Friends, I think one of the worst things God can do to any of us is to give us everything that we want. That might actually be another way to describe hell. God gives you everything that you want. Out of love, we might give our children or our grandchildren what they want to show them it's not what they need. I remember my wise grandmother wouldn't argue with me for very long until she would say to me with a smile, all right then. You go ahead. It seems like you've got it all figured out for yourself. And it wasn't 30 minutes later I said, Grandma, can you help me? And God, being a far wiser and better parent, often does that with us. Like he did with Israel of old. He may let you have everything you want, even in a final sense. And you'll wake up in the darkness. The darkness of having everything that you want and not being satisfied. One job leads to a different one. One affair leads to a different one. Four employees leads to eight and eight to 16. And you've got the perfect family and the perfect car and the perfect house. And you've now moved to a different place. You have everything you want and you're not satisfied. You have everything you want, like maybe like the ambitious Mr. Potter and it's a wonderful life. It's still not enough. The darkness only gets away when gets deeper when you walk away from Jesus. That's what happens at the end of chapter eight. He's predicting the exile of darkness you're going to be thrust into. And as Israel's history shows you this, that you, you, you don't leave Christ and go into more light. You go, you go away from Christ and enter a dark escape room from which there is no exit. That's what happens when you walk away from the Lord. That's Israel's history at this point. Here's a modern example that that actually happens, that if you're honest, you face more darkness, not less. So Bertrand Russell, a British mathematician and philosopher, he wrote books. It's either called Why I'm, why I'm an Atheist or Why I'm Not a Christian. I think it's Why I'm Not a Christian. Near the end of his life, he wrote an essay published during the Christmas season of 1903. In December of 1903, during Christmas, Russell wrote an essay called A Free Man's Worship. The title sounds like it could be a, a piece this December in the Atlantic or, or a post in the Huffington Post. Well, listen how Russell notes that leaving Christianity 
does not leave you with more light, but if you're honest, it will leave you with more darkness. Consider his own words. He says, he writes in this Christmas essay, even more purposeless, more void of meaning is the world which science presents for our belief. Namely, that man, his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of an accidental collocations of atoms. Or consider this with no God, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. When they die, that's it. Or another truth, when God is not there. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, these are all destined to the extinction and the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Merry Christmas, Bertrand Russell. And here's his conclusion in his essay. Only within the scaffolding of these truths only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. So before we leave what we perceive to be the relative hardships of Christianity, a darkness that actually ends with a resurrection, consider the unyielding despair that comes from living honestly in a world without God. It's full of unyielding yielding despair. King Ahaz and Judah got what they wanted. Thick darkness. That's the darkness of getting what we want. But now let's think about the light that overcomes the darkness. Chapter 9. Chapter 9 opens in our English text where we're told the darkness won't be forever. The ESV, you look down at your translation, begins verse 9 with but. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Other translations begin with nevertheless. Here's the contrast. They will be thrust into thick darkness, but or nevertheless, a time will come when they will no more be in gloom. And now Isaiah is speaking with prophetic perfects. Translated for us in the past tense. He's speaking of what's to come as if it's already come to pass. This is the true hope that Christmas offers. That though the darkness is deep, the darkness is not final. The message of Isaiah, the message of Christmas time tells the world, it tells you that whatever darkness is in your life, that you can have the light of nevertheless breaking into your soul, of breaking into your family, of breaking into our world. Because yes, the darkness is dark. It's thickly dark. But it's an, not an unyielding darkness. Because here's the promise that those who have walked in darkness have already seen a great light. Light shining in darkness. That's what's happening historically as chapter 9 opens. It's thought the darkness of the invasion of Assyria, the consequences of their sin, now have closed like the casket lid upon their lives and their nation. They've been shut out from any light. We're told that, 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 that they, they lie now in, in the, north, the most northern part of Israel. We're told the land about to be conquered is Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This place is where God's glory will shine. A time is coming when those people in darkness and those two tribes are going to see a great light. Now notice, notice this tender grace of God that before the darkness of the exile has even happened, Isaiah is announcing a nevertheless of God's grace. Before the darkness descends, Isaiah says the light's already shining. Why is this region singled out for light? Well, the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon are the two tribes just mentioned that are on the farthest north. They lie at the edge of Israel's borders, which means they will be the first to fall when the invasion of Assyria comes and the first to be carried into exile. And not only that, 
not only are they the first to fall of this border town, but they will be so overrun now with Gentiles, with Assyrians, they, they become so fully Assyrian that the whole area is overrun and now it's called the Galilee of the Gentiles. The whole area once known with two tribes of God's people so overrun, they lose their identity that they now become known by the moniker of that's the Galilee of the Gentiles. It becomes symbolic then, even in the literature of brash paganism, a secular godlessness or religious syncretism, self-righteousness, a place once associated with God's chosen people now becomes a place of scorn. That's the Galilee of the Gentiles. And yet, Isaiah opens chapter 9 with a prophetic, nevertheless, saying that those people who live in despised Galilee, they have seen the great light first. And there's part of the wonder of the promise that the light of God's love breaks out into the darkest places. It starts in the most unexpected places to the most undeserving people. The light of God's salvation dawns in the Galilee of the Gentiles. The light doesn't dawn at Bethlehem, the home of David, nor does it dawn in Jerusalem, the city of David. But of all places, the light dawns here in the Galilee of the Gentiles. We could say it dawns even to people like you and people like me. The light shines. Here is a light shining for those in darkness. More than that, here's a great light, an unexpected light. Here's a light being shown for the nations of the world. Not the Jews only. The Galilee of the Gentiles. And from this blinding reality of light to those in darkness in verses 1 and 2, verse 3 gives us several descriptions of joy. Here's what it's like when you know the light has dawned. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they're glad when they divide the spoil. These three pictures come to us in rapid succession. Picture number one, a day's coming when God's people, now in pieces, reduced to a barely noticeable remnant, will once again multiply. They'll enlarge to become a great people again. And there will be joy. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. Picture number two right after it. A day is coming when God's people, though they're now sad because of the barrenness of the fields, the emptiness of their crops and provisions, they will one day rejoice like somebody taking in a bumper crop, a plentiful harvest. The tears they sow in darkness will spring up in gladness. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And picture three. A day is coming when God's people, though devastated from the destruction of their city, will actually turn the tables. They will celebrate like conquerors who divide the plunderer over those who once oppressed them. They are glad when they divide the spoil. These three images then, these three images in verse 3, they explode like flash grenades into Israel's darkness. It's loaded with verse 3. Here's a grenade. Joy, rejoice, joy, glad. One after the other, they explode and they flash into the darkness. Here's the joy of light shining in their darkness. The joy of light coming into the world. Friends, I think the promised joy of light shining in darkness in these verses helps dispel the lie that following Jesus as the light of the world will lead to gloom and doom in your life. These images of light coming, and you'll receive it like a nation growing, a harvest overflowing, or a battle won, tell us that we're made for joy. The psalmist tells us, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As Jesus walks the dusty roads of his day, he tells them, I've come that you might have joy and your joy might be full. This is the light shining in the darkness. Isn't this the way that the Oxford Don C.S. Lewis describes it in his Weight of Glory address? That the problem with most of us is not that our desires are too great, but they are too small. Remind yourself of these words or hear them for the first time. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday, of a vacation at the sea. This is why Lewis includes In children's stories, 
Lewis includes images of wine and feasting and merrymaking, even in the Chronicles of Narnia. And he's not trying to corrupt young minds. He's trying to expose the lie that following Jesus will lead to your sadness. He's trying to expose the counterfeit joy of this world. It's a sad fact. Many have observed that that many people grow up thinking with this terrible lie that is Satan wants to set you free. And Christ wants to crush your personality. Allied to this is an equally false belief that Christ is a cosmic killjoy, a joyless Puritan who hates all forms of merriment and revelry and indulgence. But Lewis, in his children's stories, is trying to expose the satanic propaganda, showing us that it's the devil, not Christ, who's the killjoy. In The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, it's the white witch. She's the one who's made it always winter and never Christmas. She's the one who forbids the feasting and joy. But when Aslan returns, guess who comes with him? It's Father Christmas. And Father Christmas brings a bunch of gifts and wine and food. And they all begin to feast on the wine and food like they hadn't for quite some time. And it's all because Aslan was back. But then the white witch arrives at the party and she says, what's the meaning of all this waste, this self-indulgence? Where did you get all these things? And when the animals respond, their gifts from Father Christmas, the witch in a fit of rage turns them all to statues and stones. What's Lewis saying? He's saying the real killjoy is Satan, not Christ. You'll become less human, not more human when you follow the counterfeit joys of Satan. Christ comes to be a light in darkness, a, a pathway through the Red Sea. He comes to give us invincible, sovereign joy. These verses remind us, too, that every then, every act of self-denial, every desire that you reorder and redeem, every temptation that you avoid is done out of a desire for a greater joy and a deeper joy. We're told in our world that denying yourself is not good for you, that it could be emotionally damaging to you. Tell that to the personal trainer or the nutritionist who tells you, deny yourself to fit into your clothes. Deny yourself for something better. Deny yourself to get swolt. I mean, that's what the trainer says. That's what you do. What if God is better than an earthly trainer? What if he's wiser than a nutritionist? Have the courage to do something bold. Not to affirm yourself, but deny yourself. All around us is the common narrative that you have to express yourself. And our main role is to listen to one another and affirm one another, whatever the story, and affirm them. We've even renamed, here's where we are, this isn't, here's where we are, we've even renamed medical procedures that cut body parts off of minors as gender-affirming surgery. We've replaced the biblical category of stewardship So that now self-care and self-love are the two greatest commandments of our Western world and which the self is the highest good and the biggest God. And everybody else has to bow down to the self. You can only affirm yourself. You can only affirm me. But to come to Christ today means you will have to break the greatest commandment of our culture. Rather than affirm yourself, you will have to have the courage to rebel against yourself. Deny yourself. You see, the only way out of darkness is to commit the ultimate act of rebellion in our world. Deny yourself. King Herod lashed out at the light. King Ahaz leaned on his own understanding. You can lash out at the light. You can lean on your own understanding. But the only way out of the moral darkness is not to express yourself, but to deny yourself. For whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever denies himself will find life. That's what's happening in these verses. The darkness of Israel and Judah and Ahaz came as they lived life apart from God. They thought they knew better. And now here comes Ahaz as a dead witness saying, don't be a fool. Here's ancient Israel saying, don't be a fool. Look to the light shining in the darkness. And what follows now are three reasons. We had the light and then three images of the joy that comes. And now we have three reasons why you can rejoice that the light has dawned. They're in four and five. 
four, five, and six. You look in your text. Verse four starts with a four. Underline that. Verse five starts with a four. Underline that. And verse six starts with a four. Here are three reasons you know that light is coming. Would you read them with me? Those who walk in great darkness have seen a great light. Here's the proof. Here's what's going to happen. Four, the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Reason number one, God will end all oppression. Light has come like he did on the day of Midian. Now, Midian was where God where God reduced Gideon's army again and again and again until they had 300 men to face an invading nation. And God says, I like those odds. But when it's done, God wins. He chose weakness to show his power. And now God's saying again to those in darkness, he's saying, I overthrew the Midian army before with almost nothing. I'm about to do it again. Not only that, but in order for this victory to happen, you're going to have to trust me like Gideon did at Midian. It will be the sword of the Lord who delivers you. And when I come, all oppression will be smashed. It will cease. Reason number two. Not only are the weapons of oppression ended, but the oppressors themselves are defeated in this graphic scene. The tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood will be burned up in the fire. Friends, God is not indifferent to evil. He's not morally neutral. He's no cosmic Santa Claus who may keep a list of naughty and nice, but then lets everybody slide. God is more joyful and more just than we are. And verse 5 shows us God's response to the evil of our world. And one day, friend, it will be his response to the evil in your life, too. Christmas time is telling you that the darkness you see or you might feel in this life is a shadow of the darkness to come should you reject him. And finally, here's the third reason. Verses six and seven. These are some of the most familiar verses of Christmas, but now we've done our best to kind of set it in the context. They've been set to music from Handel's Messiah, a glorious section with the bass solo and then the choir and the soprano announcing it all. A glorious section. We even sang part of this in one of our hymns, Exult in the Savior's Birth. Well, step back for a moment. Here's the darkness of sin and Assyrian impression that's closing around God's people. They're going to be taken captive by the strongest nation of the day, led into exile by those nations for 70 years. But now here's a promise of the breaking of weapons and the burning of them in the fuel as fuel for the fire. How will God do this? Can we trust him? Remember, that's the context of the whole book of Isaiah and even the section, because in chapter seven, Isaiah warned Ahaz to trust him. He warned Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in faith, you will not remain secure. The point was trust the Lord. And chapter eight, he repeats the summons to faith, saying, do not fear what they fear. Do not be in dread of them. Fear the Lord of hosts. Let him be your dread. Aren't these questions with us today? I mean, from the living word, God asks us the same. Who will you trust in your darkness? Who will you turn to when you're lonely and confused? If you do not stand firm in faith, you will not remain secure. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. 
All right, can, can you help me out, God? I want that to happen. Can you help me out? Well, for starters, I gave you a sign that the virgin would conceive and bear a son and would be God with us. So trust God and this son. But now comes another note in the melody, another note on the chord unfolding to us about this son of, who is Emmanuel. This is a son, a baby we can trust. And now he's going to give us a number of titles that tell us what this baby now will do. That when you look now, when you look now at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, if you look at it, you look in your text, here's how I picture I know it's silly, right? Here's your picture. You're right here. When you do this, when you cradle this text, staring up at you from the blanket of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 is the face of a newborn baby. God is going to win with the weakness of a baby. That's what the verses say. Light has dawned. Joy has come because a child is born and a son's been given. Here's how God's going to over, overwhelm his enemies. Here's how he'll conquer our hearts. A child is born. A son is given. The giving of the son does two things for us. First, it reminds us that Jesus didn't just come at Christmas. Jesus was given as a gift. What difference does that make? Well, you can't earn a gift. Jesus is a gift of love and light. You can't earn Jesus. You can only receive Jesus as a gift. He's been given as a gift. For God so loved the world and its pathetic darkness that he gave his only son. Jesus is the inexpressible gift, the unspeakable gift. This means that light can only be received. It can't be earned. And only if you see yourself in darkness can you receive this gift. Second, the sun language sets us up to expect the sun to be a king. Not only from antecedent story in Psalm 2, but the middle of verse 7 tells us this sun will sit on the throne of David and his kingdom will be forever. At the same moment that God just rejects Ahaz as the house of David, he's now renewing his promise to David from 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a son who would sit on the throne Forever. And this son who I'm giving, the government will rest on his shoulders. This means that Jesus will carry. He will carry the governments of the world. All authority will rest on his shoulders. He will have all authority and all might. And all authority and all governmental power will rest on him. Here's the promise of a baby who will grow up to be a king forever, who has all authority given to him. You know of any king like that? A king who has all authority. A king who's a descendant in the son of David's line. And after the announcement of this infant son given, we have four names. These names describe the character of the king. Just look at the names here first. We have counselor, God, father, peace. Those are the four names. And each one of those names is given a qualification. I know in Handel's Messiah, it says, Wonderful, rest, rest. Counselor, that's not what's going on. It's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let's think of each one of these names and the qualification that comes with it. First, this son shall be called counselor. Now, in the ancient Near East, a counselor was far more like a war room cabinet position and strategist as opposed to a modern day shrink. Lie down and tell me about your dad and your mom and where you're from. No, no, no. That's not the counselor image here. The word references somebody who makes plans. Like a legal counselor. Like a military advisor rather than a therapist. The title is more or, or much more of a king who knows what to plan and can carry out those plans than it is the image of somebody who knows to give great advice to troubled people. And what we're being told is this son will have the Holy One of Israel's ability to plan and carry out what should be done. Now, here's a contrast to Ahaz. His counsel, his strategy was to trust Assyria. His plans, his counsels failed. But this child's plans and strategy will never fail. Why? This baby is called a wonder of a strategist, a wonder of of a counselor. Wonderful doesn't mean delightful and giddy and splendid. It means 
power and ability that creates the reaction of wonder. Now, I remember, I think I've told you all this before. I remember memorizing this word, word wonder in Hebrew class by thinking of the great soccer star Pele. Because that's roughly how this Hebrew word is pronounced, Pele. And Pele was such an extraordinary soccer player that when he did this and he did this and he kicked here and he did this, everybody went, oh man, that is amazing. Well, that's the meaning of this word, but notched up in a category of its own. He is extraordinary in his skills. He is supernatural in his skills. He is wonderful. It's what God says to Abraham when he says, you and your wife, Sarah, I know you're past childbearing years, years, but you're going to have a son. And God says, is anything too hard for me? Is anything too wonderful? Is anything too extraordinary for me? That's the wisdom, the strategy, the supernatural ability to plan and counsel and give wisdom will be so great. This child's counsel and strategy is in a category only reserved for God. Now, if that's the case, now think of this. Whatever then is going on in your life at this very moment must be part of his all-wise strategy and plans for your life. Will you trust his wisdom and strategy and plans or yours? He is a wonder of a strategist, sovereign over all plans and all events. This son shall also be called God, qualified as mighty God, or El Gabor. Why did I say El Gabor? Because Miss Martha Bunn talked about Gabriel, and Gabriel's name is this. God is mighty, mighty God. At one level, it could mean, when it says this son will be called God, it could mean that this child will act like God. So Jesus is in Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called the sons of God. That is, in so much as that people act like peacemakers, they imitate God in peacemaking and thus are called his sons. Like father, like son. He makes peace, you make peace, you're God's son. That could be all that Isaiah is saying. But in this case, he's called the mighty God. That is, this child will act like God so much in his power that he's just not simply a son of God by function, but he is God. All the mighty works that God does, this son will do. He's called the very name God is called, mighty, because he will do everything that God does. He is the mighty God, the El Gabor. This baby possesses the wisdom and strategy of God, the mighty might of God who created a world with a word. He brought down Pharaoh with a lamb, a giant with a sling. He declared things to pass before they had ever happened. And now he will conquer the world through the gift of a baby. And he's saying, what's the power of Assyria next to this baby who's called mighty God, El Gabor? I didn't tell Brian we sang enough songs, but at this point in my study, I wanted to sing, my God is so big. Right? There's nothing my God cannot do. So strong and so mighty. Yes, this one is being called that God. This one is called that. Yes, yes. Third, he will be called Father. Strategist, God, Father. This name shows us a few things. Here are two together. It shows us the personal nature of the infant. He's called a father. It shows us the protective, providing nature of the infant. He's called a father. Personal, protecting, providing, this infant will be a father. Now think of that. What difference would it be to know that the person with the extraordinary strategy plans who has divine might is also your father? Could that be true? That someone who's an extraordinary strategist, sovereign over all plans, and has power to execute those plans as the mighty God is also someone we could call Father. Maybe you're here and you don't have a father. Maybe you have a father who's not a good one. Even as an adult, a bad father can have its effects on us. Maybe you've had a really good father and that father's just passed away and you're alone. Well, here now is the promise of an infant 
who will possess all wisdom, the power of God, who's the kind of providing and protecting father who's also an everlasting father. He will never stop being everything that a father should be. Never. And related, this title of everlasting father not only means personal provider and protector, but it means that we could translate it this way. He's the father of eternity. He's the father of everlasting, which means he's not only eternal, but he stands as the eternal authoritative protective father over every moment of time. It's a title of honor expressing his sovereign relationship to time. He's the father of eternity. The father. We have this expression, right? Yeah, the, it, you know, there's that scene in Remember the Titans and the Denzel Washington character is talking to the to the player who's getting on the bus and he's like showing out and acting up. And Denzel Washington comes over and leans him and says, you tell me, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? He's like, look, look, you are. You're, that's right. Now get on the bus. I'm your daddy. Get on the bus. What we mean by who's your daddy is who owns you? Who's your boss? Well, if you asked the hours and the seconds of our days, who's your daddy? They would say that infant son's our daddy. He's the father of everlasting. Every moment of your life, every second of your life stands the father of eternity. That infant is the father of eternity. Our days from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. The father who will never leave and never forsake is also the father over every moment of your life. Christmas past, Christmas present and Christmas future. And finally, he will be a prince this of course means he will be a ruler we think of prince as jv and then become a king no no no. this is a ruler and this would not be good news unless it were qualified that this ruler will produce peace all you need to do is to look at any political climate anytime that you want to and you know that not every ruler produces peace but here's one whose power and might will be used to bring about peace peace in its fullest sense You know, there was, I don't know how many days it was. There there was peace between Israel and Hamas for a few days. That wasn't peace. Peace is not just an absence of hostility. But here's a prince who will bring about the rule and wholeness and completeness of things as they should be. It will be righteous and just. He comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. Everything will be restored to its true and right order. The people who walked in darkness have seen this great light. And according now to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, the brightest part of that light is a child born, a son given, who's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Well, the great question in the text for them and us is, who is this child? Who's the child called Emmanuel, now described with titles, belong only to God? And where is he as we head into thick darkness? You know, in Isaiah's day, some people thought this birth announcement referred to Hezekiah. You can read the end of Isaiah, and he certainly was used of God to turn back Sennacherib's army, the Assyrians. But Hezekiah is not even born at the time of this prophecy. A hundred years later comes King Josiah, who does bring in a measure of revival and peace, but Josiah is killed by the Assyrians. Who then is this promised child, this born of a virgin, who will bring light to those in darkness, who will bring light, don't forget, to the Galilee of the Gentiles? Isaiah dies not having seen this promise. And one day there's this this son of a Jewish carpenter who sits in a temple and he's 12 years of old and he's surrounded by the brightest professors in Jerusalem and they pepper him with theological questions and they're all amazed at the answers of this 12-year-old boy, amazed at his understanding and answers. As an adult, this son of Joseph in the line of David makes his way to a place called Samaria, a region that Jews avoid. Uh, The Galilee of the Gentiles, this is worse. And he sits down at the well to have a talk with a woman who's been through multiple marriages. And currently she's in a live-in relationship. When the afternoon conversation ends, the woman runs away in amazement saying, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Is this not the Messiah? And nearly every time Jesus finished speaking, people would say something like this. Nobody ever talked like this. And when people tried to take his life, he said, my hour's not yet come. No man takes my life, but I will lay it down for myself. Could this son be that wonderful strategist? And this same Jesus of Nazareth turns the water into wine. 
He feeds more than 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread, just like God had fed his people in the wilderness. He would give sight to the blind and attract the poor, as Isaiah says. He stills a storm at sea, which left his closest friends who knew him on their faces, marveling, what manner is man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Could this Jesus be that infant promised as the mighty God? And then he would stand and have the audacity to say, you know what, I'm going to tell you this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Could this infant be the everlasting Father? And because of his death on the cross, people stand up and say, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Could Jesus be that infant? We can remove all doubt to this as who Jesus is, if he is or not. Because Isaiah 9 is quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted in that passage in the front of your order of worship. We looked at quietly as the service began. And when Jesus first begins his preaching and teaching ministry in Matthew 4, guess where Jesus starts his preaching ministry? Of all places, Jesus starts his preaching ministry in the very area known as the Galilee of the Gentiles. It was then and had been a place of darkness and gloom. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but Joseph has to flee with Mary and his wife, Mary, his wife and infant son, because he was warned in a dream. So Joseph flees up north to Nazareth, to the Galilee of the nations. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but he grows up in the Galilee of the nations. And so looked down on is Nazareth in the Galilee of the Gentiles that in Jesus' day, people start saying this about Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes, this is the very region. It's in the Galilee of the Gentiles that Jesus not only grows up, but he begins to preach. So when Matthew sees Jesus preaching in Galilee where he starts, he writes... Now, this was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah, that the people walked in darkness have seen a great light. That infant is here. Here he is. And Jesus stood up and announced then, I am the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the light shining into the Galilee of the Gentiles. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son as a light to the nations, to those walking in darkness. So here's one low-hanging fruit. So this is missions month. Go across the street then. Go across the world. Jesus is the light for the nations. You have this light for the nations. Don't hide it under a bushel. He came to be a light to the nations. God so loved the world. He came to be a light in the darkness. Look unto Him, I would say to all of us, young or old, member or Yes, look unto him and be saved. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father and the prince of peace and the wisdom that you need, the strength that you need, the father that you need, the peace that you need are only found in him. He gave his life to give you light in life. This is the infant son, the mighty God, the prince of peace.